In November 2014, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a World War I Centennial Symposium in partnership with the Hampton Roads Naval Museum and the Old Dominion University Department of History. The following is a lecture by one of the presenters, Katrine Clay, author of the book King Kaiser Czar, an exploration of the relationships between the royal cousins King George V, Tsar Nicholas II, and Kaiser Wilhelm II on the eve of World War I. They're cousins, you know. They're in a family with loves and hates, as all families have. But once you're a royal, of course, it plays out on the stage of world politics. So in a sense, one of the things you could look at with me is that if they have friendships, suddenly they become alliances. You know, and you think you're doing something private, but you're not. You're going on a, on a visit to a country, and of course, suddenly everyone says, aha, this is significant. And they were extraordinarily unaware of how much their private lives, and their private hates and loves and preferences played out on the big stage. And there are various reasons for this, of course, which we'll look at today. Uh, so first of all, let's have a quick look at the first cousin. Actually, I didn't think he was coming up first, but he, here he is. Uh, this is Nicholas, a uh, young five-year-old. What I think you should know about him was that he was absolutely adored by his parents. A loved child, uh, and a child who grew up uh, to be an autocrat. Not necessarily extremely bright, but bright enough, you know. And if he hadn't been, or put it another way, if he'd been a constitutional monarch with good advice, which he took... Uh, I think there would have been a great deal less trouble uh, for Russia altogether and, and for, for all of us. But he was a decent man and a nice man. And his cousin, Wilhelm, Kaiser Wilhelm, when he was grown up, he said about him, the Tsar is not false, he is weak. Weak is not treacherous, but it fulfills the same function. And that is such an interesting thing to say. And quite honestly, I think uh, the Kaiser was one of the more intelligent of the three. But he was so messed up, as we know, that that is a dangerous combination. And dangerous he most certainly was. Uh, but Nicholas grew up, um, he was very small and frail. And uh, his grand duke uncles were huge, towering. And he was always battling. He never wanted to be Tsar. And of course, he married Alex, Queen Victoria's favorite granddaughter who uh, was absolutely certain about one thing, and that was the autocracy of her husband. And she was forever saying to him, be firm. And that is just what he could not be. Here is the next one, Georgie, later George V, another adored child. Georgie is with his mother here. He's about 12. He was not due to be king, but his brother died. So he married his brother's fiancée, and uh, became, uh, in due course, Prince of Wales, and then George V. Uh, likewise, a very happy childhood, as a matter of fact. The Queen Victoria called them wild as hawks, these uh, children of Edward VII and Princess Alexandra, uh, who were the parents, and who were incredibly indulgent, so that if they were doing their lessons and they felt like taking them out for a nice walk or a party, they just walked in and said, come on, let's leave lessons and away we go. So this is how they grew up. And then he went into the Navy, again, had not wanted to be king, um, but had to leave, had to become Prince of Wales, and then king. 
Uh, but a happy childhood, and I think it's worth remembering this when we compare it to the next one. Ah, there he is. That is uh, Willie, who became Kaiser William II. I know you, I'm sure you all know that uh, when he was born, it was a breech birth. Um, it wasn't just that he, um, his left arm was affected and his hand was, you know, he, it was all half size and, uh, and so on. You know all that, I'm sure. But of course, it also affected his inner ear. He had no balance. Um, our Prime Minister in England, Salisbury, whenever he talked about him, would always say, uh, not quite there. You know, there's, the, he was extremely damaged. Moreover, in being damaged, his mother found she could not really love him. So he grew up very um, uh, disturbed um, and prone to be flattered, uh, and flattered he most certainly was. Um, and so in due course, he came into the hands of um, some very rabid monarchists, uh, and they told him that what he needed was to have his personal rule. That was the great phrase they used, personal rule. But the trouble with that is that, of course, they influenced him by the back stairs. Uh, and what they felt was absolutely a hate for Britain. So you, you, you have a lineup gradually building up in Europe uh, of um, this young Kaiser uh, being taught, in a way, to hate, to an extent, the thing he was, because he was half English. And in England, when he was with the English family, he was called William. And in Germany, with the German family, he was called Wilhelm. So, you know, he's a sort of split character, which is equally a problem. Um, and here is another problem. <laughs> Do you know who these are? The two sisters. These are the Danish princesses. And when Bismarck launched his uh, uh, yet another uh, war to unify Germany against Denmark, he earned their undying hate because he took away from their, fa their beloved father's kingdom rather a large piece, uh, which they never, ever retrieved. And so they hated Germany and Prussians and, 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 and Bismarck. Uh, and then they married one the Tsar and one the King of England, who was Edward VII. And they influenced very, very strongly both their husbands and their sons in due course. And there is a strong feeling in both the Russian family and the English family that really they, they ostracize Willie a lot of the time. They snub him. They don't like him. And this does play into the whole story. Um, one of the things that happened is that when Alexandra, who is on the left, when her husband became Edward VII, the very first thing he did was to organize a trip to France. And it is the one essentially unconstitutional act he committed in his reign, because he was, of course, a constitutional monarch, whereas all the others were autocrats. Uh, he told no one he was going. Frederick Punsonby, who was his query, wrote a very interesting memoir, said no one knew where he was going. And he was uh, going to have a trip, a, a, a nice happy trip around Europe and his yacht and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's all it was, innocent. But of course, what he was doing was he was going straight for France and courting the French. And out of it, came, that was in, in uh, 1903. By 1904, you had the Entente Cordiale. And what did the Entente Cordiale mean to the Germans? It meant a line-up against Germany. And what was it about? It was about the colonies and what the Entente managed to do and was ratified uh, at the Algeciras Conference a couple of years later uh, is that um, it then, Morocco 
and northern Africa was being sorted in spheres of influence, which were for Britain and France, but not for Germany. And one of the great phrases that uh, Willie used to like to use was, uh, a place in the sun. They were not given a place in the sun, because of course, Germany getting big and powerful was a threat to the others. Um, so there you are, there, there was none. Uh, and that caused uh, yet another line of antagonism. There is um, Willie dressed in, uh, you know, this is his split personality. Queen Victoria had given him this splendid um, Highland Scotland outfit, but um, had his um, photograph taken. But underneath, he writes, I bide my time. And he calls himself William, Prince of Prussia. 1884. Well, if ever there was a split personality, if you're called William on the one hand, but you're Prince of Prussia on the other, and then you say, I bide my time. And this was under the influence of his rabid monarchist friends who hated Britain. What was he biding his time for? You may ask yourself. But, you know, he was going to get his revenge, is, is, is sort of how he felt at that stage. But, of course, another part of him loved his English family uh, and was devastated when all this went wrong. So uh, the personalities of these people pl play very largely into, into the events. Um, just for pleasure to show you one of his 400 uniforms, which he had. What happened, I think, is that he had to become something. Um, you know, you have to think, when he was a child, uh, he had lessons from 6 in the morning till 6 at night in the summer, from seven in the morning until seven at night in winter, training to be Kaiser. He had to learn everything. He was rather bright, actually, and did fine at school. But he also had to learn to ride and things like that because you can't be a Kaiser if you don't ride and you don't shoot. And he, he had only the one arm, you know. And it was very interesting how he dealt with it because he fell off that horse again and again and again. But he got on and eventually he could do it. And what's more, he could feed himself because he was given a special implement, you know, with a fork, a spoon, and a knife, and all that. You know, I mean, he, he coped. This is what's so interesting about him, it seems to me. He coped with his very, very difficult situation rather well, but emotionally he did not cope well. And, and I think that is where the, 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 the gap comes. Um, so here he is signing himself once again, William, and he is posing because when people met him, they were terrifically struck by the fact that he really, really did not look like that. He wasn't very tall. He, he, he wasn't actually all that commanding. Um, but these are all the sort of pictures that your ordinary German family had in their house, rather like in the Second World War. They all had Hitler on the, on, on the wall. Now here they had, they had him. And people believe that this is how he was, uh, and he wasn't. Uh, instead, you have the other two who were terrifically good mates. Uh, and this photograph is often called the twins. They looked so alike. Both loved their royal yachts uh, with their um, 400 ratings and whatever else every, uh, a, a royal yacht had. And they used to meet in places. This is at Cowes. And there is a friendship, a family alliance, which plays out very strongly on the big stage um, quite soon after, because this is 1909, one year before Georgie's father dies, and then he becomes king. And like Nicky, he absolutely had not wanted to be king. He was terrified of it, didn't want it at all. But that was the way it was. On the other hand, luckily, he was a constitutional monarch. 
And the reason he survives and our monarchy survives to this day, resplendent, I'm sure we all agree, is because it is constitutional. And this is what desperately was needed uh, for Willy in Germany and Nicky in Russia. So this is the last time the three cousins met. Uh, you may know this drawing. Obviously, there are no photographs of it because you couldn't in those days take a very long. But it also gives you some idea of the splendor. This was Kaiser Wilhelm's youngest daughter, uh, youngest child. He only had one daughter. He had six strapping sons and one daughter. Uh, Sissy, and it's her wedding in 1913. And they all arrived in their royal yachts and so on. It all appeared grand and splendid. Uh, I think you can probably pick them out for yourself. Look at the middle people and you'll see them all sitting there. But of course what happened is that all the time Wilhelm thought that the other two were ganging up against him. And um, George V said that actually they, they, he followed him around the whole time and he kept listening at the, at the door, you know, trying to sort of hear what they were saying. It, he, he, utterly and completely paranoid, you may say. However, he wasn't that far off the mark because within a year, this is the letter that Georgie is sending to Nikki. I'll read it out to you if I can re read my own handwriting. My dearest Nikki, you will remember the many satisfactory conversations we had last year in Berlin when we both so entirely agreed upon the great importance of maintaining our friendly relations between our two countries. I confess that I feel so anxious upon this subject that I write this private letter to explain what is causing this anxiety. It goes on, chats about the aunts and this and that and the other. But what is this letter? This letter is, as he calls it, private, but in the Royal Archives, where I was lucky to be able to work, at Windsor Castle, in that very big stone tower, which you've probably uh, seen. Um, there is, um, apart from his diaries, which are very fascinating to read, George V's, there is a copy of this letter, and it's written in Lord Stamford's hand, who was his private secretary. And uh, previous to that, there is a draft written by the Foreign Office. So you see, here is, the, here is this fatal thing of uh, a so-called private letter, which is massively political. Uh, and what it is essentially saying is, yes, we are going to be allies, and Germany is not. And in fact, already in 1912, in December, there had been um, a Kriegsrat in Germany, uh, which is a war council. And the previous month, not the later, but the previous month, there had been a war council in, in England too. So that is talking about 1912. So, um, you know, this was all on the cards a very, very long time before um, the thing actually went up, you might say. I would just perhaps read out to you what you might call the, the royal countdown to war. In February 1914, uh, Nikki's Minister of Internal Affairs, Peter Drovno, advised against war with Germany. He wrote a memo about it, and he said it would not be a short war. There's no possibility that this would be a short war, and that revolution would very likely follow. Russia was not prepared for war, neither economically nor politically. And anyway, Germany's main belligerence was his opinion was actually Britain, not Russia. So this is uh, in February 1914. That's the advice in Russia. And it's certainly true that Russia was not ready for war. So by the 16th of June 1914, 
Georgie is writing the private letter that you see above there. Uh, by the 28th of June, uh, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, which uh, you know people used to say was the start of the First World War, but obviously was just um, uh, the match that struck the light. 23rd of July, Austria sends Serbia an ultimatum, so worded to make it impossible for them to accept. On the 25th of July, Henry returns to Germany from Buckingham Palace. Who is Henry? Henry is Heinrich. Uh, the Kaiser's younger brother. So he's in the wrong place. Who is setting off from Buckingham Palace to Sandringham? Uh, the two Danish princesses, because the Tsarevna, the Dowager uh, Tsarina, um, has been visiting her sister, and now she has to race for Russia, and Henry Heinrich has to race for Germany, and along with everything else. I mean, nannies and doctors and diplomats and all sorts of people in the wrong places, and they're all racing along to get back to their own own uh, countries by this point. George V actually has to cancel his visit to Goodwood Races. It's rather upsetting. Um, uh, and uh, the Tsar still believes at this point that his cousin, the Kaiser, would never wage war against him. That's what he's saying. He just can't believe that his cousin would do this. And the one thing the cousins absolutely share always and call each other royal colleagues is their view about socialists, uh, anarchists, in the, in the case of uh, the, the, the Russians and so on, agitators, and uh, even parliament, uh, which um, the Kaiser calls uh, the, that monkey house. Uh, they're entirely in agreement, these three cousins, as to uh, you know what a shower they are, and of course, the danger of revolution. And it is the single reason why one cousin, George V, who loved his other cousin, Nicholas II did not help him to find asylum in Britain in 1917 because he knew that uh, there was a danger that revolution could even spread to good and peaceful England. And he ditched him, as we all know. Um, anyway, uh, here we go. By the 28th of July, uh, Austria has declared war on Serbia. And it's terribly important to remember that the Balkans had been trouble for a long time as well. That didn't come out of the blue either. And each time it was the great powers like Austro-Hungary, Germany, and so on, and Russia, standing there behind the wings, you know, pulling the puppet strings, uh, as always. Um, so now uh, Wilhelm moves into uh, one of his favorite roles, which is as Kriegsherr, the warlord, you know, and he struts around, uh, you know, full of uh, bombast, hardly knowing anymore who he is, I don't think, uh, until one day it suddenly dawns on him. This really, really means that he might be having to fight his cousins, and then he is absolutely appalled. And he likewise goes round, uh, apparently, the Palace of Potsdam, sort of saying, oh, too many enemies, all so many enemies. What? How can my cousins do this to me? You know, so there he is, this child who was split uh, when he was a child, still, still in that very same sort of um, psychological um, situation. Um, so he um, ha finds that his navy is prepared. The reason for that, as we know, is Tirpitz, uh, who uh, got the army going with the Army Bill of 1913, but uh, had his um, risk theory. So for every great battleship, uh, every three of Britain, Germany was to have two, which is interesting, actually, to, m to my mind, um, you know, that he didn't say three for three. Uh, he said two for three. But uh, anyway, the risk theory worked, and he, they were ready. They were ready. Russia was not. Germany was ready. 
Um, so Willie sends his cousin in Russia a telegram, cipher as always. This is the most horrible war that will ever be witnessed, he says, and he thinks it's an act of treachery, treachery from one royal colleague to another um, to be doing this, by which he ignores the fact Austro-Hungary has, has actually done, started the ultimatums and things. Um, and uh, from the Tsar's point of view, he, can't, he says, well, what? What's he talking about? I mean, uh, have I gone mad? I mean, it's already happened. I mean, we can't stop all this now. George V, in his diary on July the 30th, writes, uh, things look very black. I saw it myself. It's, uh, his diary is bound in green, big green leather things, and uh, the handwriting is, as you saw here, you know, very like schoolboy handwriting. Things look very black, true enough. Willie wrote at that same time, so, the celebrated encirclement of Germany has finally become an established fact, and the purely anti-German policy which England has been pursuing all over the world has won the most spectacular victory. Even after his death, Edward VI is stronger than I, although I am still alive. That's his point of view, obviously, not everyone's point of view. So by the 31st of July, momentum is more or less unstoppable. Uh, George V sees uh, Asquith in the morning, Kitchener in the afternoon. In the evening, he's looking through his stamp collection, which is a nice and calming thing to do. Goes to bed at 11.30, woken by his equerry at 12.45, midnight. Asquith waiting in the audience room, um, and he has a draft of a telegram for the Tsar, um, which, of course, is, is, is to the point. And uh, it means that this will mean war. So uh, 1900 hours, Germany declares war on Russia. And Georgie writes in his diary, whether we will be dragged into it, God only knows. France is begging us to come to their assistance. At this moment, the public is dead against it. Dead against our joining in the war. But we cannot allow France to be smashed. To me, that's terribly interesting. This is literally three days before uh, it's settled that we're, we're going to go into war. Uh, and the public in Britain is still dead against it. Well, obviously, um, the uh, machine gets going, uh, the newspapers and, and whatever else get going. And within two days, uh, the public's mood is changing. That is really how powerful uh, monarchy can be, actually, and, and also the press. Uh, and so what do the uh, king and queen do on the 4th of August? They choose their Russian carriage to go uh, out into the crowds, into the streets, uh, out of Buckingham Palace and around. And what do they find? They find streets and streets of cheering, madly cheering people. The whole mood completely turned around. We were forced to go and show ourselves on the balcony three times, he writes in his diary uh, that evening. Uh, and then Ray made his statement in the House uh, of Parliament um, that Britain could not allow Germany to pass through the English, cha uh, to the English Channel, nor her tr uh, troops uh, into Belgium. So uh, there is the 12-hour ultimatum that passes, um, and in the end, on the 4th of August, in his diary, George V writes, fairly warm, showers, and windy. That's because he remains a good naval man, and nearly every entry in his diary starts with the weather. 
at 10.45, I held a council to declare war on Germany. It is a terrible catastrophe, but it is not our fault. I always love that. <laughs> really nice. Uh, okay, um, and then finally, as a final thing here, we have August the 6th, Austria declares war on Russia. Willy in Germany was hurt to matter all day. So many enemies, so many enemies. Uh, but in a speech to the people, wearing one of his grand uniforms, he um, shouts out, you know, I am the instrument of the Most High. I am his sword, woe and death to all who resist my will. Um, well, as we know, uh, by the end uh, of the war, he was in exile, monarchy gone there, Tsar was dead, and the only person who thrived brilliantly, of course, was George V. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.